sometimes we underestimate the power of small things, don't we? Of one person. Of one team made up of just four people. Of one church or of one family. We, we have a tendency in our society to focus on the big, don't we? But today we've wanted you to think about the power of small things. And the significance of, of little things. Such as the one we sing about in our Christmas carol. Oh, little town of what? That song was written by a man named Phillips Brooks. He was a pastor in the Northeast and he was in the Holy Land. He was actually in Bethlehem on Christmas Eve, 1865. I'll show you a picture of him right behind me. And Phillips Brooks uh, was the author of A Little Town of Bethlehem. But it didn't emerge from his heart until three years after his return. He said about that visit to, to Bethlehem on Christmas Eve in 1865, he said this, and I quote, I remember standing in the old church in Bethlehem, close to the spot where Jesus was born, when the whole church was ringing hour after hour with splendid hymns of praise to God, how again and again it seemed as if I could hear voices I knew well telling each other of the wonderful night of the Savior's birth. He returned to America and resumed his pastorate. And in 1868, he penned the words to a little town of Bethlehem around Christmas time again. And he gave it to his organist. It was originally a five stanza poem. He gave it to Lewis Redner, his organist, and introduced that on Christmas Day, 1868. A song that tells us about the little town of Bethlehem. Isn't that the Christmas city, isn't it? Bethlehem. It's also the, the focus of a key verse in Micah. It's Micah chapter 5 verse 2. And I think it's an interesting verse. Because it's set in contrast to big things all around it. Would you locate that verse? Micah chapter 5 verse 2. You may have a difficult time finding Micah. It's a small book, oddly enough. Tucked away in the prophetic section of the Old Testament. So if you were to find the book of Psalms, which is kind of a large book, and then just go right, you'll run into it eventually. Micah chapter 5 is where I want you to notice for a moment. And this morning as I lay out the book of Micah for you as an introduction to our series this month, this verse stands as somewhat of the literary apex to the book. It's somewhat the poetic climax. It's where things kind of culminate. Look with me, Micah chapter 5 verse 2. Here's what the man whose name means, who is like the Lord. Here's what he said about this little town of Bethlehem. He says, but you, Bethlehem. And of course the word but there shows us that this is in contrast to what he's been talking about and has talked about throughout the whole book. This idea of of this little town of Bethlehem, Bethlehem Epaphra, which means fruitful, He says, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. I'd encourage you to circle that verse and underline the word Bethlehem because it stands in stark contrast. And it lifts itself up as the, as kind of the, the, like I said, the apex of this prophecy because it stands in contrast to two other cities that he mentions in Micah 1 1. Now flip back to Micah 1 1, would you? The very first verse of this small little book. 
Micah is set in contrast to two great cities, two capital cities. He mentions them in Micah 1.1. He says here, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morasheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. By the way, those were three kings in the province of Judah. The, the children of Israel are now split. They were in two kingdoms, the northern and the southern. And these were, of course, two, uh, three kings in the southern kingdom. He says, uh, that's where I lived, Micah did. And he says, I had a vision concerning, and he mentions two capitals here, Samaria and Jerusalem. Samaria was capital of the northern kingdom with its ten tribes. Jerusalem, capital, of course, in Judah, in Judah, of the southern kingdom. And they were big cities, economically doing well, politically making alliances, geographically centered where they were prominent. And yet, out of those large and great cities, guess who would not come? The Savior. But guess out of what small little place would arise the Savior? A ruler of all nations whose origins are mold. Out of a little town called what? Bethlehem. And, and, and the book really lays out a prophecy, a vision that Micah had against these two large cities, Samaria and Jerusalem. And he, and he culminates his prophecy by saying, you know, out of this little town called Bethlehem will arise the Savior of all mankind. How poignant for us at Christmas time when we are enthralled with the bigness of the event to realize that it was from a small little town our Savior came. I remind you that the city contrast, the town contrast is not the only one. The book itself shows a, a neat contrast between Big, apparently significant things, and what we may think are seemingly unimportant things. For instance, Micah himself seems to be kind of an unimportant, um, almost hidden prophet. You know that his contemporary was Isaiah. If you were to ask anyone, where are the best prophecies about the coming king and the birth of our Lord? They'd mention Isaiah to you. They wouldn't think about it. Micah, he's the lesser known, isn't he? He's the smaller of the prophets. In fact, theologically and hermeneutically, you know Micah's known as a minor prophet. Isn't that funny? Isaiah's known as the major prophet. It's true also uh, culturally. Isaiah was the one who also spent time in front of these kings. They were mentioned in Micah 1, Hezekiah, Jotham, and Ahaz. Do you know, Isaiah actually spent time with the kings. He was face-to-face in the palace of royalty. He was the one who was, who was nose-to-nose with these kings. Some of them very wicked, some very good like Hezekiah. But he was the one kind of going toe-to-toe at times. He was the one with the invitations. And Micah, from what we gather, never left the region of Judah. Never had the face-to-face confrontation. So, culturally, politically, uh, in a literary way, Micah takes a, a, a backstage to lots of things. And yet it's from Micah that we see an important truth. Listen very carefully, First Family. Small things matter. Like little towns. Little prophets. Like little babies. Kind of reminds me of the year 1809. In 1809... We were all consumed with Napoleon. The war between Austria and France and the new steamboat. That was the year the steamboat was patented. And it was going to change travel forever. Amen. How many of you been on a steamboat recently? (laughs) 
We were all consumed with what was seemed to be on the major headlines across the world. No one thought about the babies who were born that year. But did you know in 1809, Abraham Lincoln was born. Edgar Allan Poe. Charles Darwin. Whether for right or wrong, some prominent, famous people were crying out like a little baby in 1809 while the world was consumed with the steamboat. Sometimes small, insignificant things go unnoticed, don't they? But later they, they, they reveal themselves as, as prominent matters of great worth. And so it is with Bethlehem and the little baby in that manger and the book of Micah. It may appear insignificant, small, minor, but all oh, the truth from it and the, and the prophecy in it speaks to us mightily. In fact, there's a number of small things mentioned throughout this book. He takes a, a theme of, of noticing insignificant. He runs it through the course of his book in about three sections. I want to have you notice these just briefly. Can I do that with you? You have your Bible there. You turn to Mike and you've got a pen handy. I think he kind of brings out in a large, in kind of an, uh, a large way and an overview three things that we tend to look at as insignificant. And he says, truthfully, these are very important. They matter a lot. The first one he talks about in chapters 1 and 2, he talks about insignificant things. In fact, let me show you one of the key verses in these first two chapters. Look at Micah chapter 2, verse 12, would you? And I'll have you turn to several portions, so have your fingers ready, your knuckles cracked. I hope you're kind of ready to turn some scriptures here as we get an overview of Micah. Micah chapter 2, verse 12. Circle the phrase in verse 12. He says, I will bring them together like sheep in a pen. Now, now what's more insignificant than some sheep in a pen? They stay outside, it's somewhat dirty. Just sheep in a pen. Why would he bring us together like, like princes? Why didn't he bring us together like the royal family? But instead he's going to bring us together like sheep in a pen. And what do, do sheep need? But in this motif here at the end of chapter 2, he talks about his shepherding ability. He really shows the value of just being a simple sheep in the flock of the chief shepherd. Set against, watch this, set against what they consider to be very important. Look at chapter 1, would you? Chapter 1, they really valued things that looked important and fancy and, and rich. And Look at chapter 1, about verse 6. He talks how he'll take Samaria and he'll make her a heap of rubble. And then he talks about things that are in Samaria right now, like these, these massive stones they've used to, to lay her foundations. Verse 7, the idols that were there, the temple gifts, and these many images, the things that she's gathered from prostitutes. In other words, there was a lot of pride and wealth and and things that, that they collected, they gathered, material possessions were very important. It led to their, to their pride. Look at chapter 2, verse uh, probably about verse 3. The last part of verse 3 says that they were walking proudly, but they'll no longer walk proudly one day in the time of calamity, it says. But they were proud people. And then if you look through chapter 2, you see why. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. They were so proud that they felt they could actually walk and, and just take things from people. It said in verse 2, they covet fields and they seize them. Houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home, a fellow man of his inheritance. Look down at other parts of this chapter. It says that, um, um, I'm looking down through here, chapter 2, that they strip off the rich robe in verse 8 from those who pass by. 
They drive women of my people from their pleasant homes. Much of this chapter speaks of how in their pride they would just take the things they wanted. Homes and lands and houses. And he says at the end, those of you who have been treated this way, and though your cities have been apparently looking nicely, when they all come to ruin, don't worry, I will gather you like sheep in the pen. What a contrast. God doesn't need your fancy stuff and your incredible possessions. God just needs you to be a sheep. Are you with me? Sometimes we fall prey to the culture's mindset and we have to have stuff, don't we? When God really wants your soul. God's more interested in who you are than what you have. And in fact, I would encourage you to, to jot what's written behind me. Possessions don't increase my worth to God. Men think, you know, we, we think, wow, that makes someone important. That makes them significant. But the truth is, just the fact that you were created in God's image makes you significant. So Micah's message in these first two chapters is watch out for, for people in situations where, where things get front and center view. Because sometimes seemingly insignificant things really matter a lot. Like sheep in a pen. He goes on in chapters 3, 4, and 5 to talk about insignificant people. Now if you'll read these three chapters, you'll notice that Leaders and false prophets, they're a prominent theme in these chapters. And in the middle of, of, of talking about leaders and false prophets and how they held certain positions and they would say certain prophecies to get their way, it was all about position. It was all about making sure that, that you held on to your rank. In the middle of all that, he, he mentions in chapter 4 about verse 6. Look at this. In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the home. The lame. I will assemble the exiles and those I have brought to grief. I will make the lame a remnant. Those who were driven away a strong nation. Wait, wait, God, what are you doing? Take the false, take, take the false prophets and leaders who, who look the part and who have the position to do what they need to be doing and take the folks who look the, like they're really important. Don't take the exiles, those without a home. Don't take the homeless and the hurting. But what does God say? He says in the middle of a, of a rich and prestigious society, He will find a remnant among the homeless and the hurting, those who are grieving. Guess what? God thinks that, that those that we sometimes look at as unimportant, He considers them significant people. Sometimes a power suit can be misleading, can't it? A certain kind of tie, a certain makeup dress. We make sometimes uh, more out of position and titles and where the parking place is and who has the corner office. But sometimes those things don't tell the whole story. God finds great worth in people, especially those who are hurting. Those who society would call, quote-unquote, insignificant. Have you overlooked people that God thinks are valuable this season? Are you stepping over those that matter? To get to those that are seemingly more important. I'm glad James Flanagan didn't. 
James Flanagan, 1917, Omaha, Nebraska. Most of America was concerned with seeing if their boy was on the list of those killed in Europe. World War I was going on. And we were checking the papers every day. James Flanagan was doing more than checking papers. He was trying to make his way to his church and he was stepping over those who were orphaned and homeless in Omaha, Nebraska. Went home one evening on December 12th, I believe it was. He said to his wife, he said, Honey, I know the war is going on and everyone's concerned about the boys across the ocean, but what about the boys in Omaha? And he said, I think we should invite some into our home. And on December 12th, James Flanagan invited six orphaned poor boys in his home. And that was the beginning of Boys Town, USA. Aren't you glad that James Flanagan didn't think that, Oh, they're just a bunch of little kids. They're better seen, not heard. Aren't you glad he didn't think that? And invited some, some young men into his home. Who the world probably thought they were insignificant, but God didn't and James Flanagan didn't. Amen? Are you looking at people in the right perspective? Are you seeing them with the eyes of Jesus? Micah says those kind of people really matter. God will save them and use them as a remnant at the end. The last two chapters of Micah, he talks about insignificant acts. Look what he says in Micah chapter 6, so probably about verses 6 through 8. A very famous section of Scripture. If you know anything about Micah, you're probably aware of this verse right here. You might not have could have found the book relatively quickly, but you've heard this verse mentioned several times. Look at Micah 6, 8. He says, God has showed you, O man, what is good. In other words, what is acceptable and what is pleasing. It's, and what does the Lord require of you? And then the famous verse that a lot of us know. It says, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Wow, those are, those are somewhat, watch this guys, apparently insignificant things. You mean just to, just to love the right thing is important to God? Just to walk humbly and to love mercy and to, to want to see the right thing happen? Yes. But I thought we should do a, a bigger, have a bigger fanfare for the Lord. Well, that's exactly what some of the guys in Micah's day were thinking. Look back at verses 6 and 7. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. The question was asked, what, with what shall I come before the Lord? How shall I bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? In other words, the best you've got. And more than one, by the way. Will the Lord be pleased with, look at verse 7, with thousands of rams? That'd be a, that'd be a load of animals, wouldn't it? Or with 10,000 rivers of oil? And then he, he really reaches the, the climax of this, of this performance mentality. He says, shall I just then give the firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? I mean, how, how much do I have to do to impress God? Bring all my stuff, give 10,000 rivers of oil, which is a matter of money and, and wealth. And can I, should I even just give part of me, my, my kids? And by the way, King Ahaz did exactly this. In his wicked reign, he offered his firstborn. And I think this is a, a literary, more than a jab, it's a literary knockout blow to the king in the southern kingdom who offered his firstborn son as a sacrifice to, to pagan gods thinking that would impress them. Hey, I've got some awesome worship going on. Really? You know what God really wants? He wants you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly.
see, things, people, and acts that we think don't matter, that are insignificant, the truth is they rise to the top in God's economy, don't they? How are you worshiping the Lord this season? Are you looking for the largest way to do it? To make the biggest show? Or are you focused on making sure that it's right inside? Are you trying to stay so busy with Christmas pageants and the fanfare of the season and all the things that that go with the, the Yuletide time of the year? You're trying to stay so busy with all that so you don't have to focus on the, the, the hollowness here. Sometimes churches are our worst enemy in that we can make people so stinking busy at crucial times of the year that we end up coming through the year with like, man, I feel like a worn out rag doll. And we've missed doing what matters most. Loving, mercy, acting justly, and walking humbly. And here's my point, guys. Micah is filled with the message of small things. And it shows the value of small things. Could there be a better message at Christmas? When we're wrapped up, and we're in a society wrapped up with the big stuff, how much we're going to spend on our kids? How much can we afford to spend on our kids and on each other? And, and you've done this too. You'll, uh, you'll be by a tree, and even as an adult, you fall for the... For the um, the large package kind of what am I saying here? Like you'll you'll be by a tree and you'll see a large package and a small package. You'll you'll just sure that what's in that large package is better. And we do that as kids, but even the adults are like, man, I think I'll take the large one and it'll be some kind of gift exchange. I mean, we just are as humans, we fall prey to bigger is better. And Micah screams a message at us at Christmas. Don't undervalue the small things, the small people. The small acts. Hey kids that are in the service here. Don't count your presents this year. Don't compare them to what your sister or your brother got. Just be thankful for the little things. Hey moms and dads. Hey singles. Let's value the small things at Christmas. Let's live out the message of Micah. And and see... People as significant. All people. Amen. And, and let's see things as, as not near as important as, as we're told they are. And, and let's see worship as not a pageantry or a fanfare per se. And there's places for that. But let's make sure it starts in our heart first. And give God what He desires most. Ourselves. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Are you with me? And that message runs counter to the culture at Christmas time. But what an awesome opportunity to live biblically when you understand the message of Micah and the value of small things at Christmas. Perhaps that thought lays the foundation for the words of another Christmas carol we love to sing. And though we don't know who wrote the first two verses, we do know that uh, I think it was John Thomas McFarlane wrote the third verse. And then a man by the name of, I think, James Ramsey put all three verses to a tune from Britain and a tune from America. And somehow this hodgepodge 
of, of lyrics known as A Way in a Manger kind of came together in 1888, 20 years after A Little Town of Bethlehem. And believe it or not, it first appeared with an unknown author in a book called, and I'll quote for you the name of this book, Dainty Songs for Little Lads and Lasses. I think it's interesting that the song that talks about a very insignificant thing like a cattle trough and a crying baby was written by someone we're not sure who wrote. It's put to tunes that were pretty common in that day. One from Britain and one from America. And yet, every year in December, we'll sing away in a manger, won't we? Can I invite you to join me this morning at the manger? And let's stay in this stable that in that year probably seemed very insignificant. After all, there was a census going on. An international, worldwide census by Caesar Augustus. That's the important thing. And, and could someone keep the little baby in stall number three quiet? After all, they're, they're so poor they couldn't even afford a room. They were late getting here. They couldn't even find a place to stay. So we, they better be glad they even got a cattle stall and a trough to put that baby in. Man, they didn't have any a bigger guest list than a bunch of shepherds. They sure weren't dressed for the occasion. Man, what's going on over there? And in that little cattle stall, in a manger, lay God. Who would die for the sins of the world. Why don't we make much of the manger this season? Let's find our significance in what matters most. That out of Bethlehem would come a ruler whose origins are from old. That's right. Little Bethlehem. A little manger. And a little boy. But sometimes the smallest things have the greatest significance.